0: Well, good morning, everybody. This morning in celebration of Pride Month, we wanted to take time to draw some connections between the past and today, specifically between early communities of Jesus followers and pride. There are some really powerful parallels between pride as a protest, as a resistance against violence and domination, and the ways that early Jesus communities resisted violence and domination in their own context. One of these parallels is the way that we push against the boundaries of understanding gender. We figured that this would be an important scholarship topic to talk about on Pride Weekend in Chicago. So whether we are looking at first and second century Rome or our own context today, it's important to remember that gender, in part, is a social construct. So there are behaviors, interests, traits that are socially designated, as uh, typically masculine or feminine. But this is complex. Gender isn't just socially constructed. Gender identity can be inherent apart from socialization, this deep inner sense of knowing yourself. But the social construct piece points to the fact that whether it's on a societal level or an individual journey, our conceptualization of gender shifts and changes. Yeah,
1: yeah, so like one way, if you're newer to conversations around gender or sexuality, one way that we can have the conversation is to think about three layers um, so one, the f- one layer would be anatomy. So it's like you, the sex you are assigned when you're born. That's uh, first layer. A next layer would be gender, which is, as we're saying, uh, th- this is like the, the social imagination that culture gives us in terms of how can I express uh, the gender that I identify with. And uh, may, you know, sometimes even as you're mentioning, like we can feel something that maybe our culture doesn't give us a social <laughs> imagination for. There's something going on. It, it's not quite expressed in what the options are for me. So that's the second layer, gender, and then the third layer would be sexuality in terms of how do I relate to, how do, how am I attracted to or not attracted to the the other anatomies and genders around me. And so you take you know those three things and uh, and the, those multiple layers. And then you put them inside of cultures which assign things like good, bad, appropriate, not appropriate. Uh, statements to those things and this conversation is really complicated and full of nuance and this is why uh, in a lot of ways I think one of the one of one of the reasons that pride is such a uh, an important thing to shine a light on in terms of the the benefits that it brings to our culture is it pushes us out of a binary when mm-hmm. we have those three layers and they all have all of these different ways that they interact with each other and all of these different examples of like you could be here on this one and here on this one and here here on this one, it's way more complicated than are you male or are you female? Are you straight or are you gay? It just gets mm-hmm. a lot more complicated than that. And so I think that that's, that, that's useful for our conversation today um, for us to be kind of marinating in how those different things can play out because it's going it, to, it, it, as, as we'll discuss in a moment, there are striking parallels with things that were going on in the earliest Jesus communities.
0: Yeah, this idea, the language that comes up is often queering. Yeah. So taking something that is set in a binary and actually embracing how nuanced and complex it truly is um, but Vince, you've been reading a book lately that's going to help guide our yeah. conversation here. So, do you want to get started? In I can. Us about yeah,
1: that? yeah. We're going to have a little bit of a book report today, because, <laughs> uh, or at least two chapters of a book that I, I found really helpful, and I was excited to bring this in on Pride Weekend in Chicago. Um, so, the the book I'm going to be pulling from, if you're curious about it, it's written by a group of scholars, but it's one of the most readable group of scholars' books <laughs> I've ever read. So, if you're like if you're like a history buff, you will really like this. Um, you don't have to be a nerd theologically or something like that, like me, the book is called After Jesus Before Christianity. Really interesting title, right? After Jesus Before Christianity. And the point of the book in general is um, drawing attention to the fact that we we often kind of, it, it's certainly in the church world, but in his, historians in general can sometimes really quickly refer to uh, the, the the centuries, the two centuries immediately after Jesus as sort of a unified thing, like we talk about early Christianity or the early church as if everybody was on the exact same page and doing the same things, and it only got more complicated when the Reformation happened, and then everybody split up and it was different. But up to those first you know couple centuries, everybody was on the exact same page. And these scholars are arguing that's not the case. <laughs> that uh, there was a lot of diversity, just like when we look around today, Even if we look around in Chicago, what are different churches doing on the weekend after Roe v. Wade was overturned and on the weekend of the Pride Parade in Chicago? I'll bet we can imagine lots of different things happening in different churches this morning, right? As we are meeting here, there might be very different things being said or being done in another church in the same city. And the idea here is that same diversity was probably true of the early the early Jesus communities. And so they talk about the different ways that communities formed that were trying to follow Jesus, that were uh, like expressly saying, we are looking to this Jesus of Nazareth as our savior, as our Messiah, as the one we want to follow. And they talk about how some of them were like, they were like associations or almost like, uh, like a union-like, as we would understand them, like there were trade groups that had no rights in, in imperial Rome. And these Jesus communities, because they cared for the downtrodden, because they saw when people were poor and pushed aside by society, they offered sort of the same sort of things that unions offer people today. So that's some of the Jesus communities that propped up. Others were like supper groups, so you think about, you know, people getting together and having meals together is such a key part of people building community. And this happened early in these Jesus communities, that, these communities that called on Jesus as their guide. And what they would often do is they would break socioeconomic barriers. So the rich were not supposed to eat with the poor, but that was happening in mm-hmm. these early Jesus communities. Uh, or other things are like... Living arrangements. So there was like communal living, generally communal living in in that age in the first and second centuries when uh, when Jesus was walking, and and there were the, the 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 immediate centuries following that in the Mediterranean world. If you had a larger group of people living together, it was extended family. And what this often was was like chosen family. So you'd have people who are not actually blood related, not actually kin, living together in order to experience more community that they were not getting elsewhere in the culture. And all of these groups had very very different interpretations sometimes, just like we experience today. And there were some, that get less, uh, I would say, less um, publicity, if, mm-hmm. if that's a, for lack of a better phrase, uh, over the ages because as is sort of often said in history circles, uh, the winners tell the story of history. And, uh, and, and this, this book is really fascinating because it pulls out uh, many things that have been less told over the mm-hmm. years, and it's looking at, um, at at some some artifacts that can help us understand what was culture like, what was what were these early Jesus associations and clubs and communities like that uh, that has not largely been told to the wider public. And one of the things that they discovered, they discovered like there there are there are like six distinct behaviors that mm-hmm. they saw from these groups, and one of them was that they did this thing called gender bending. They would take understandings of what it meant to be uh, male or what it meant to be female in that world, different from ours today, but in that world, and they would bend the rules, they would shift things, they would intentionally push boundaries, and it, and, and the scholars actually use the word queering to help mm-hmm. us understand. It's a modern word, it's not exactly what they were doing, but it can kind of help us understand what was happening in that day. And boy, is it some fascinating stuff. We'll get into more, but yeah. like this is a good break point. Yeah. yeah,
0: well it's it's interesting because it's not an exact, like you can't yes. take what they were doing and make it's not it, the it be the thing same as what we're as doing today. we, yeah. Mm-hmm how we see things today, but there's a definite, I think being able to paint things in the same trajectory and the same tradition is really helpful because it anchors things instead of thinking like something, um, something like pride is an offshoot or hard to incorporate into the Jesus tradition. It's actually, I think really interesting that it's a core tenant or a common behavior of this yes. wide range of communities. Yes.
1: And 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 specifically for a context like a church like mm-hmm. ours, I mean, we situate ourselves in the Christian tradition because we are followers of Jesus and therefore we have as a part of the tradition we're situating ourselves things that we find problematic and things that are, you know, beyond just problematic. They have hurt people. They have hurt mm-hmm. people in our community, right? And so what do we do with that? I think it's important for us to to highlight these things more so than just like saying, oh, isn't this interesting? I think as a way to, to uh, say out loud, like this is the, the, the idea that to follow Jesus, um, you have like the burden of proof is on you to prove that you can care about pride on the weekend of pride in Chicago. Maybe that's not the case, actually. Maybe there is deep in this tradition things, stories, narratives, experiences that have not been highlighted and have not been given enough voice that can actually help us to see that there isn't a competition here. Mm-hmm. There is actually there's actually reason to say that, like we are we're actually right in line with many of the early Jesus communities,
0: yeah. Um so I'm wondering here if, We talked a little bit about gender as in part being socially constructed, so could you tell us a little bit more about just the general cultural understanding of gender in these early Jesus communities? Yeah,
1: yeah, so um, we're gonna do, this is the the history book report (laughs) part of of our message today, We're gonna kind of like transport us back into first and second century Rome. So we have, Rome is the imperial power, there are lots and lots of oppressed people groups that have been conquered by the Caesars of Rome, one of them is Jewish people, of which Jesus was a part, and, uh, and which we learn a lot about when we read the Gospels. We read inter- interactions between the Roman conquering power and Jesus and Jews of the day, which again, had lots of diversity mm-hmm. there. You can, you can see some of the diversity in terms of uh, how they thought about gender, uh, even in the Bible itself. So you think about um, something like first Timothy uh, has these has uh, statements that are among the most problematic if you're uh, coming from the angle that I am when I read the Bible, which are things like um, women need to uh, listen and never speak and be in full submission mm-hmm. and obviously you're Sitting next to me, so we don't actually believe that here, but uh, but that is evident in the Bible. That you know, t- messages like that are there in uh, representing the scriptures and the activities of some of the early Jesus communities. At the same time, you also have in the scriptures and represented in activities of the early Jesus communities something like uh, the book of Galatians, which its famous flourish is there is neither Jew nor Greek neither male nor female, neither uh, slave nor free these ideas of like totally breaking down the boundaries that we often assign and then you know create hierarchies as a result of and those are those are both at, uh, present in the scriptures that Christians look to I mean like, I mean if, if we're not talking about like settling with diversity mm-hmm. right like it was not a unified voice uh, and you know what do we do with that now a side note that we won't actually go into, both 1 Timothy and Galatians are are traditionally uh, suggested that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote them. Most scholars do not actually believe that today. What we believe, Galatians was, pro- was almost assuredly written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy was written by somebody after who used Paul's name but uh, that can kind of account for some of that diversity. Um, at any rate, you can see like there there is not a there's not a single voice about this. Uh, but what's important to highlight, I think, is a little bit of the differences between uh, today's gender constructions. When we talk about uh, what we experience, mostly we use the word binary. We experience mm-hmm. like you're either male or you're female, and there are idealized versions of what it means to be male. There are idealized versions of what it means to be female. It's like Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. If you've you know heard that kind of phrase before, that that sort of typifies what we believe about gender in our culture today. Now, granted, that's being pushed, and I think it, many in our in, in this room or watching us online would you know would be familiar with ways that we're, you know that those boundaries have been pushed. But that's that's the sort of culture that we've inherited. Now, if we're going back in time to first and second century Rome, it's a little bit different. There's definitely the same sort of, like, we experience hierarchies. Men are considered stronger or better, and they're paid more than women in our culture today. There's still some of those same troubling hierarchies. But it's, it's not so much that there's a binary as it is there's a one-sex ideal. That's what the scholars refer to the gender construct of first and second century Rome, the one sex ideal. And the idea is that men are natural humanity. We, they are, they are the, the, the truest version of humanity. And women are just a deformed or underdeveloped version of humanity. Try to you know, keep the vomit inside you as I go on, because uh, I'll just kind of keep uh, going <laughs> for a second. So uh, the connotations are that men are strong Men are courageous, which is the, 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 the the value of first and second century Rome is courage. Uh, Men are, their bodies are firm and fixed and boundaried and like, you know, if you hit the perfect male form, it doesn't even move because they're so firm and, you know, strong and dominant. And so you have a will to power, you have a will to exert that dominance and, Hyper patriarchal, white. Okay, right? okay I'm, I, and now the. Yeah, I, th- I think we get. It. It's a, sorry, sorry. Well, I haven't gotten to the worst part yet. Sorry about that. The worst that. is coming. So, yeah, that is, it, Haley knows the worst is coming. She's like bracing herself. Okay, so, all right, so let me, again, very problematic, but let me talk about the one sex ideal and how it imagines the less developed version of humanity that is women, okay? Please don't take this out of context and like clip me on YouTube talking about this <laughs> as if I mean this. I know, right? This is like Vince believes, okay. So women were considered the deformed or unfinished versions of men. They, they, it is, this was physically signified by their bodies being softer, unboundaried, porous in the monthly cycle sense. So the, the, uh, the, the word that the scholars use to refer to this, it, it, I, I promise you, I'm not making this up, the word they use is leaky, like the idea of a woman being leaky. I know, I know, I know, I know. But, and the, the connotations of this, so, I mean, this is, I, I just wanted to try to get you in the mindset of first and second century Rome, okay? So you're considered by definition, if you're a woman, unboundaried. Like you, you, like you, you, like you because you are porous, because you are leaky. And so uh, we see this reflected in the gospel uh, in the gospel story of the woman suffering from hemorrhaging who touches Jesus' cloak, is anyone familiar with this story in the gospels? This is a particularly leaky woman who is particularly oppressed as a result of that. And so we see, actually, in that story, the gospel reflect this reality of gender uh, uh, gender construction, and then Jesus uh, directly address it. Uh, and so that I mean, this is this is a. a something that would have been um, the water that people swimmed in in first and second century Rome when it comes to uh, men and women. So a little bit, you know, like there, there's still, obviously we absolutely have patriarchy and troubling patriarchy that we yeah. need to unpack and, and we'll talk about in our context, men versus women, uh, why are they stratified? Why is there hierarchy there? But in imperial Rome, it was not a binary. It was one sex is the ideal, and women are like lower on the vertical axis of that.
0: Yeah, and it's still not that far off. I mean, especially what we're seeing unfold right now um, to yeah. hold in this hyper patriarchal model of holding men as the ideal and this. Men get to make the decisions. Yes, men, yes absolutely. Um, just controlling. I don't need to go on, because people know what I'm talking yes. about. But I, th- I think what I want to stress here is that it's not just an ideolo- ideology or a theology behind this. It's not just some belief system. It's something that has really embodied, lived-out consequences. Right. And while it isn't the exact same as the context that we're looking at in our own context, it's similar enough to need to make the point that this is not just some like thought pattern. It has. It's a matter of life and death. Right. It's, it has actual very physical, lived out. Right. Yeah.
1: So let me, now having buried you in uh, things that made you, everybody squirm and feel uncomfortable, um, I I, I know. So uh, what the scholars uh, in After Jesus, Before Christianity, what they spend a lot of time unpacking in a couple of chapters is ways that that gender construct I mean, so harmful. We don't we don't have to like go into much detail to understand like how harmful that would be. Ways that some of these early Jesus communities bent those gender constructs, played with them, intentionally pushed boundaries, tested the limits so they could like create more social imaginaries for how one could be well, how how one could be gendered in the society and some of the examples are really beautiful I'm only going to bring in two uh, again if you want to read the stu- uh, the book there, there's lots of examples uh, brought in so I'm gonna I'm gonna draw from these are sources that are shortly after um, uh, a lot of the sources that we have in the New Testament of the Bible um, and. Uh, uh, what we what I want to give is a couple of examples of that uh, of what we saw disrupting conventional understandings with regard to gender or sexuality in the first and second centuries. So one is from a lost writing called the Gospel of Mary. Um, this is a late first century writing. It was rediscovered more recently, and so it's, it was not well known for many hundreds of years. Uh, but it would have been written um, uh, late in the first century, so Jesus' ministry is about from uh, till about 30, 35 uh, of the common era, and then late or in that century is probably when the Gospel of Mary is written. So this is some of the first like generations of people who are part of Jesus communities, and in that uh, in that Gospel of Mary, there's uh, a, a situation where a disciple of Jesus, Levi. Uh, defends and shows respect to another disciple, Mary. We don't know who this Mary is; they're just called Mary, so we don't know if it's a Mary that is also present in the other gospels that use uh, that use the name mary if if it has any it probably would not be Jesus' mother because it's written so much later. but something happens between two disciples of Jesus, uh, and Levi, this uh, disciple, defends Mary, and the uh, what happens is he Levi chastises some of the other men disciples and says, you are contending against the women like the adversaries, which refers to Roman culture, the the larger culture that they're in. And Levi encourages, clothe yourself with the perfect human. Clothe yourself with the perfect human. This idea really evokes that idea in Galatians of there is neither male nor female. What we are looking to is the perfect human that is not encapsulated by male or female or, you know, the perfect sex in, in, uh, in, in the Roman ideal. Women can lead, men can follow and be submissive. The, the male pre- preoccupation with being, like, firm and fixed and and you know never taking anything in because you just, you can't nothing can get in here i'm so boundaryed and tight and you know fixed, uh, th- that idea is is really pushed against by this interaction and uh, a queering of those ideas uh, suggests that the the things that that women are, uh, are in that culture seen as for negative, like them being boundary pushing or uh, unboundaried or porous, is actually seen as a positive rather than a negative. It takes it and it just sort of says, oh, we, we're going to talk about this as if it's like a, a terrible thing, it makes you lesser. What if that's actually exactly what we need? We need to follow Mary because she is, by definition, a boundary tester, a boundary pusher. We will not stay the same if or we will stay the same if we never follow Mary. We have to follow her in order to move into the directions that we are being called to. Gen- uh, gender boundary pushing, especially by women, is seen as a powerful thing, as a thing worth putting yourself behind, rather than something that makes the woman lesser.
0: You have another example here too. Yeah.
1: So uh, the other is uh, the way that a text, um, sp- uh, a text about martyrs in the uh, in the earliest uh, centuries. So martyrs, people who who died uh, uh, for their for standing up for something, uh, standing up for the Jesus uh, faith, if you will. And um, there is a text from uh, the intertestamental period. So this is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, called Fourth Maccabees. It's not as well known as the New Testament or the Old Testament um, books like Fourth Maccabees, but it is actually considered a, a part of the Bible for many Christians in the world. Uh, and this, this story in 4th Maccabees is its very sad, but it is inspiring. Uh, it's about a group of Jewish martyrs that uh, die at the hands of one of the most violent and cruel rulers in Rome's history. The name of that ruler was Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and uh, this story sort of unpacks these martyrs dying. Uh, and among the martyred, are uh, a woman who is a mother and uh, and an old man who is sort of past his prime. And uh, the climax of the book pits this mother and this old man past his prime against Antiochus Epiphanes, who is like... In the ancient Roman world, the picture of manliness—he, it's he is—you is, know—displayed d- d- uh, in like statues and art as strong and firm. That boundaryed look. He is courageous, and he's considered a god because he's so powerful, and he has that right to dominance and that right to power. And the book sort of pits these two. Pictures next to each other is the martyrs, uh, these Jewish martyrs, this woman and uh, who is a mother, and this old man who's passed his prime against the perfect Antiochus Epiphanes, and then what it does is it sort of says if if this is what a man is supposed to be, no one should be a man. That's basically the gist of the message because it takes this idea of courage. Courage, actually the word courage in Greek has the same root as the root in man. And so courage and man are synonymous. And this book is all about courage. It's about reasoned courage is the is the the theme that 4th Maccabees keeps going back to. And what it says is, oh, what is reasoned courage? It's not manliness, as Antiochus Epiphanes mm-hmm. shows it. It is something entirely, it, it is imagining new social possibilities for what it means to be a man, what it means to be manly. And it's saying, what we've inherited is not all there is. It's complexifying mm-hmm. that
0: we've brought in this text a couple of times from Galatians about there's um, no male or female, no slave or free, whatever Mm -hmm. the things are there. And I think it's important to name that that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our embodied experiences. Mm, Like our identities don't just like, it's not, that's almost the, like, I don't see color type of mentality. Like it's not just like, I don't see your, your identity and who you are. Um, it's actually a statement that there's no hierarchy. Yes. That there's no, what we would construct into a binary, the way that we would sort things out, with this context of having a one sex ideal and how that plays out, it's not saying like, none of your embodied identity and experiences matter. It's saying it matters so deeply that we can deconstruct or take down that hierarchy um, and embrace a humanity that's not set in these binaries. Yes,
1: it's important to note that in these examples, in, from first and second century Rome. And then also, if we look around at the, at the parallel today, which is how does pride speak to American culture of the last century, um, if we look at those examples, what's happening there when you use phrases like neither male nor female or what, whatever, that, the, the, the negative way to take that, the way that I think we would not be recommended to mm-hmm. take that would be we say no neither male nor female to make things more simple. It's like, oh, you know what? Having binary is too too complicated, so let's just make it simpler and bring it all down and that'll be easy. And then it's simple and we don't have to worry anymore. <laughs> It's the, that, it's the opposite of that, right. Yeah. They're not, it, it's not saying no male nor female to make it simpler. It's saying no male nor female to make it more complicated, mm-hmm. to make more space, to include more, uh, more non-conforming identities and situations. And that, I think, is the key. Is When we read neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, w- are we taking that and we're saying, oh, it's just making it so simple so everyone can fit in? That, I think, is a really immature reading of those scriptures. I think the point there is to make things more complicated. It's a lot like what we talk about in our series on community we have to tell more stories Mm -hmm. to allow more people to to enter into these spaces and and belong in these spaces we don't tell a more universal story we tell more diverse stories
0: more complex more nuanced things like that yeah yeah um but do you have an example here of um, Jesus as yeah. an example of queering? Well, this is, this is what, what this got me
1: thinking about, is in, in particular this idea of um, playing with the idea of the equation of manliness with courage. I really think that this is, this is such a way that we might use, again, using a modern term, so it's imperfect, but if we can take that term and apply it to Jesus, in a way we see Jesus queering gender on the cross because we have this picture of the height of courage. But what is courage? It's not domination, it's self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So we have this, this picture that is so equated with manliness in ancient Rome. But what is Jesus displayed as in that moment of his most courage? Leaky, right? Mm-hmm. Porous, his blood poured out right like it is a it, it it's taking the 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 pictures of manliness and the pictures of perceived lesserness in terms of femininity and it's saying jesus embodies both of these in a way that you know is is throwing the ball down the field not accepting your hierarchies that you that you lay upon this story and i just think that is that is powerful mm-hmm. that is a powerful way that that jesus on the cross it can speak to the idea of gender gender constructs that that leave people out. I, I think we see, we see Jesus blow that wide open yeah. on the cross.
0: Yeah. I was listening to a podcast recently that looked at different moments in Jesus' life and resurrection um, as Jesus coming out of the divine closet. <laughs> yes, yes. And right. so that's really stayed with me too. But I love this idea that we look at Christ as a model of... Um, complexifying and breaking down the binary and things like that. Yeah. Um, But as we kind of shift things to talk about why this conversation matters, what we can do with it in our own context today, do you have any examples that come to mind for you um, of stories when you're thinking about breaking down these different. I do.
1: Yeah. I like to try to ground us back in, in 21st century, right? We've been, we've been back. (laughs) Yeah, we're back. We're no longer in Rome. Ooh, that was tough. Um, I'd say sometimes it's not much easier here, is it? Um, so, I mean, my connection to this um, personally has limits because I'm a straight guy. I'm not queer. And, um, but at the same time, I do feel that I have benefited from uh, examples of queering our gender construct today that has happened. I absolutely feel I've benefited it because I, like, I, w- I was not the, like, firm, like hardened, you know manly, courageous picture of of uh, of of masculinity that America has right like we have our own versions of that picture, and I certainly wasn't that like i mean i, I remember I remember crying at school in moments of embarrassment I remember you know like being i I, I love team sports, but never good enough for varsity you know I, this is kind of a funny story that I'm just thinking of right now, uh, early on when Kezia and I were dating, I remember Kezia was away for um, uh, she was uh, a camp counselor with like middle schoolers, and there 's such a such a uh, a moment that like encapsulated what our gender constructs are. Uh, they find out her her like middle school camp uh, uh, students find out that she has a boyfriend and they ask and they 're like, "Oh, you have a boyfriend," and they start asking her questions about her boyfriend and one, one of the questions that she gets asked was, "Is he muscular <laughs> <laughs> and and, the, and then kesey 's response is well <laughs> and, 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 and so but I, I just think that really captures like the the, the constructs that I have to fulfill if I'm manly. And so uh, the, the way that, that gender has been queered in my lifetime, you know, like the high schools today are different than high schools when I was in, when I was in high school. And, uh, and, and I have benefited from that. But, but I think beyond that, like I think about the experience of one of my close friends during middle school, uh, who is out now but was closeted at the time. And I remember him experiencing scorn at the suggestion that he might be gay. And I remember, I remember me being associated with him. Like, people would call me gay. And I, I, I look at, like, the movement of culture and just how different maybe his experience would be today in a middle school than what it was then and how confusing and hard that must have been for him. And I, th- I mean, I, I think about an older sibling of one of my, my childhood friends. When I was in, like, third or fourth grade, I learned very recently that this older sibling had transitioned. And uh, when, I, when, I, when I was friends, um, my friend had an older brother and now he has an older sister. And I remember like when I learned that uh, just recently in the last couple of years, I, I, I thought back, I, was, I thought back to like games we'd play and I thought back to ideas that we'd have when I would be playing at their house and we would come up to things together. And I just like, I, I could sense the longing even then for her to express herself fully mm. and the social possibilities have expanded for her in her lifetime, and now we're in a different place than we were when we were kids. And that is that is queering gender in order to make more space. And that is something that I think we see in line with the early Jesus communities and their legacy.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's not to romanticize where we are now, but to to recognize the way that things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah. And things have. Complexified in a really beautiful yeah. way. Yeah. And I think that some of what you're describing here too of this like hyper-masculine image, that gets put on God as well. Oh my gosh, um, yes. And that's a piece of this conversation just really being important of seeing the ways that we've translated that into God's identity mm-hmm. and a picture of what God looks like. Um, But when you actually look at the language that we are given and the different images, it's a wide range of things. Oh yeah, Um, It's so complex and it's it's way bigger and more complicated than we... Like you can't fit the names of God and language toward God into neat categories in any way. Um, You've got the womb of God and a nursing mother and Mm -hmm. then you have like a soaring eagle and you've got the Trinity, which is a mess. And you've got like all of these things that are... You can't sort them or put them into some set binary that's bound up
1: one one of my favorite examples of this um that uh maybe so if you if you're somebody who uh will regularly in your prayer life uh pull out the scriptures or pull out the psalms for example or pull out um i don't know like if you're if you're a user of something like the divine hours for your prayer life this is one you can take with you okay so the word almighty you ever seen this in written prayers or in the psalms almighty Almighty God, right? Uh, you, you've seen that before, right? It's actually the most common uh, adjective in um, in the Book of Common Prayer to use to describe God, <laughs> uh, Almighty. Now, what's interesting is I think Almighty very much is built off of that like male dominance pitch, and, and a lot of what we talk about at this church when we think about uh, images of God that torment people, an Almighty God that doesn't stop suffering is not to be trusted. That hurts so many people. This. It's it's even just this word sometimes, almighty, that harms people. Well, I wanna tweak almighty. Every time you see almighty, I'm gonna make a suggestion that you insert a different word because we're just talking about translations of words. I'm gonna give you a better translation than almighty. So um, the word almighty is, uh, if you follow the translation story of how we got from the original Hebrew words that are written in the Psalms all the way down to English, almighty, what we begin with is this word El Shaddai in, in Hebrew. And El Shaddai is, uh, the, the best translations when we look at what it meant in Hebrew and what they're referring to are two things. It means mountain refuge because Israel was surrounded by mountains. Or, here's an interesting one, it's a female image. Well-breasted one. That's what El Shaddai means. Well-breasted one, like the nourishment that will never run out. We have to imagine ourselves as as infants. Well-breasted one or mountain refuge, okay? That's the best definition for El Shaddai in terms of what the Hebrews would have understood. But if we follow the translation story, eventually this this gets co-opted by a lot of these gender constructs, mostly by the Greco-Roman world that we just visited, Mm -hmm. and we end up with most of our English Bibles putting the word almighty for El Shaddai, which is the most common adjective used to describe God. When you read the word almighty, what I want you to replace for it is well-breasted one. The well-breasted God, the God that will never not be able to nourish us. I mean, that that to me is so much more life-giving. It's literally life-giving, it's nourishing, Mm -hmm. but it also avoids that idea of this dominant, controlling, you know picture of that that's in that like Roman Caesar Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a cruel, violent overlord that just like that is that is laughing while martyrs are killed. that's not God, mm-hmm. and that's not God when God looks at the suffering of the world or the injustices of the world. God is the well breasted one, not the all controlling one, and I just think, man, like all of that we get that when we are open to gender being queered a little
0: mm-hmm. bit I think too this um with life-giving pictures of God and what's life-giving for us as community. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is inclusion being the bare minimum, Mm. um, that if we really want a community that is transforming and growing and more beautiful, inclusion of the LGBTQ community is the bare minimum. Yes, yeah. we see in these stories these different identities of people who are being held up as leaders, and what you are sharing with us, and um, that the ideal is broken down and isn't the same because of their because of their leadership and yeah. their roles. And I just think that that is a really beautiful picture for us, um, that we need the presence of people who will take us out of a binary mindset and shape the community. Um, Churchy language of affirming or things like that, that that is the minimum minimum. and that's what we see in pride too, that protest and celebration and all of these things that aren't just like recognition, um, it's far more powerful to embrace them, and whether it's gender bending or what we would call queering, um, the fact that it's an identifiable key component of Jesus' communities, that should be the same for us today. I think that's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, I think we should pray.
0: Yeah, let's pray. That was good. Um, I would love to lead us in a prayer now. Um to help us scan through our bodies since this is an embodied conversation that impacts us all in different ways. And as we've seen this past week, um, not that this is a rarity, but I think it's an especially like pointed time of experiencing some things within our bodies as well. Mm. So if you wanna get into a comfortable position um, and pray with me, we're just gonna work through our bodies and focus in um, and take a moment to breathe with one another. of complexity and nuance I'm grateful that you are with us and present in all of the complex feelings we may be having that you are with us in the nuance of our stories the ways that we experience the world and the ways that we are transforming and growing individually and communally so God as we breathe Would you help us to notice where in our body as we may be feeling tension? And as you notice that tension, I'd invite you to think about what have you been carrying this week? What is causing the tension in your body? Can you put an emotion to
1: it? Just to offer some help, I sometimes have trouble naming my emotions. So one thing that I play with sometimes is uh, this idea that there are six base emotions. So if you're having trouble naming an emotion, here are six you can try on for size. Mad, sad, glad, fear shame, joy.
0: Hmm.
1: Is it one of those six?
0: And you can hold those um, in your mind as we work through the other feelings in our bodies as well. So can you notice in your body where you may be feeling anxiety? I know for me, it sits in my chest or in my gut, where are you feeling anxiety? Have you felt fear rising up in any way this week? And as you scan through your body, can you identify where you may be feeling anger? As you notice that feeling, can you identify the source of your anger? As you scan through your body, can you identify how sorrow feels? where you may be feeling sorrow in your body. Can you identify if there's something you are grieving? Can you notice in your body where you may feel joy? What is bringing you hope? Take a moment now to release any tension, to unclench your jaw, to relax your shoulders and breathe deeply. Notice in your body where you may feel at peace. How are you experiencing rest? Jesus, as we hold the complexity of all of these emotions, I'm just grateful for your presence, Mm. your nearness, in the protest and in the celebration, God. Mm. May we continue to look to you as one who knows the complexity yourself, the leaky courage. Mm. May we be grounded in your presence. Mm. Amen.